keeps unfolding. It's, uh, it's, it's massive. It's deep. It's wide. It's tall. It uh, feels insurmountable at times. The information is packed so densely that you think you can cover, you know, five verses or six verses, and by Tuesday you're saying, well, maybe one verse. And uh, there's just all these things going on. But let's review quickly, just really quickly. The first week we were in our series on Romans, we were talking about gospel identity, verses 1 through 7. Paul's gospel identity, our gospel identity, our truest self is that we belong to Christ in life and death. That is our truest identity. All of the other identities which we have have to be put into subjection under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Or everything gets messed up in our life and in the life of others. After seeing gospel identity, we saw gospel longing. And this was the longing of of the Apostle Paul to go to Rome, to be with them, to preach the gospel to them, to minister to them and them to him in such a way that the gospel would go on into uh, further parts that had not been reached yet, Spain and France and on over into Europe proper, what we think of as France and Spain anyway, called Gaul in that day. But anyway, he had a longing, and that longing was for them, and it was to preach the gospel to them, and it was to be ministered to by them, and to give them a spiritual gift, and for him to receive the spiritual gift of encouragement from them, and then that they together would go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Paul's mission is never a backdrop for him. It's always in the front of his mind. The gospel to Paul is a message which must, must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And he's on that mission. And it just, it's all through this letter. And then Ryan preached with us, uh, to us, gospel power from verses 16 and 17. And we saw that the power of God for salvation to the Jew and the Gentile is Faith given to us by God. Faith in Christ Jesus alone. Those who are just by their faith will live. Or justified by their faith will live. And last week we started gospel need. Part one, now we're in part two. And I'm going to tell you there's a part three, okay? We're not going to get through it today. Because we have a big need, folks. Our biggest and most dire need is this. That we... If you are not in Christ today by faith, therefore you are not saved. You are under the wrath of God. It's not a popular message. Never has been, never will be. Matter of fact, modern people, like people of old, find ways to make themselves feel less under the wrath of God in their moment-to-moment life Because if for one moment the veil was lifted and you, sitting in your sin outside of Christ, could see and perceive and feel the weight of the wrath of God, you would go insane. We talk about anxiety and things like that. You and I don't know anxiety until God might lift our eyes to see that we sit under his due punishment for sin as a sinner. Now, I know that last week during the sermon, I said something that shook you. It shook a lot of you, and we heard back from you. And so I want to clarify something. I never want to just run past something that is lodged in your mind. 
Um, you had questions about it, so I, I just, just in this introduction, I want to cover this quickly. I said, God does not only hate sin, God hates sinners. And I said, if you're here today and you are outside of faith in Jesus, now you, you've got to catch that. If you're outside of faith in Jesus, because some of you missed it because you went, I'm in Christ and God still hates me. And that's not what I said. If you're still outside of Christ, then you need to know that God hates you. Now, I know that's a strong statement. Those are strong words. They are not easy to digest. But I do not want to back away from what I said. Because God says it himself in his word. It does you no good, it does me no good to make up platitudes about God that make us feel better. Platitudes like, God hates sin but loves the sinner. That statement is not true, not because God doesn't love sinners, but because the better statement would be, God hates sinners and God loves sinners. God hates them and God loves them. Both things are true. And if you're not comfortable with apparent paradoxes, antinomies, and such, then the Bible is going to be a difficult book for you. Because laid right beside one truth is another truth, both equally true. And this is what God says in Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. Because what I think or what I say really doesn't matter. It matters what God says. This is what God says through David. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors. There's no stronger word in the Hebrew. Abhors the the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul, God's soul, hates the wicked and the one who loves the violence. Those two should be enough. One should be enough. It's not the only place. Malachi chapter 1, God clearly says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that's going to be repeated by Paul in Romans chapter 9 to describe the condition that everyone outside of Christ is in. God hates those who are like Esau. John Piper helps us a little, I think, with this when he says, so it is just not true to give the impression that God doesn't hate sinners by saying he loves the sinner and hates the sin. He does hate sinners. His wrath is real. It is not something... He pours out on people he approves of. This infinite disapproval is what the Bible means when it says God hates sinners. He infinitely disapproves of them. Sin is not sinful except as committed by sinful hearts. Sin is an expression of anti-God, human corruption in human hearts. Sinful volitions are owing to sinful hearts. Sinful desires are owing to sinful hearts is another way to say it. Sin doesn't just hang out there with its own existence. It is in hearts or it is in nothing. Sin. Sins do not suffer in hell. Sinners suffer in hell. 
The best way to speak all the glorious truth about God dealing with mankind is to say God hates sinners and God loves sinners. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. In an effort to make God's love look big, we don't need to remove the dark background of the wrath of God. We must hold on to the belief in the wrath of God because this is the only way we will see His love and grace and mercy for what it really is. Amazing! How can God do this? The great hymn writer said, How can it be? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That song makes no sense to you unless you believe that God is wrathful. How can it be? So last week we focused on wrath, and now you're afraid we're about to do it again, and we are, but a little differently. A little bit differently. Let me just say, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, present tense, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We defined wrath, remember. We defined it this way. Wrath is God's settled and holy anger against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Wrath is God's righteousness revealed because it is the response of the holy God to those who bear the mark of unrighteousness. Wrath is the action of a righteous God against the ungodly. It's righteousness revealed in a sinful world against sinful, godless, unrighteous humanity. Or as Leon Morris said it simply, wrath is a term that expresses the settled and active opposition of God's holy nature to everything that is evil. For him to do less than be wrathful against those who fall short of his glory and commit trespasses against his law, for him to do less than to be wrathful against them makes him less than God. Therefore, there is no God if we deny this truth. And once we had a working definition of wrath, we moved on to say that wrath is moral, personal, judicial, and Christological. We will never fully grasp the weight of the wrath of God until we look at the cross of Christ, which is the place where the wrath of God and the love of God come together. God truly loved the sinner in that moment as he poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus didn't just die, Jesus didn't just stretch out on the cross and pay a price. Generally, Jesus died for his people, taking their sin on himself so that he might take their punishment on himself and then extend to them the blessing of life. There's no general salvation. There's no general payment. There's no general sacrifice. There's a very specific atoning sacrifice in my place. He stood condemned to die. And in my place, God raised him up. From the dead, so that I might be raised up. No one can be saved without coming to fear God rightly. We cannot escape. We cannot escape. 
And the truth is, if you're here today without Christ and he has not begun to work in your heart, I pray he is already working right now in your heart as you hear this. I pray to God you walked in here bold and boastful and you're right now on your face in your heart before God saying, Oh God, don't let me die. That's the only way you'll ever be saved. Because in your natural self, you have no desire to escape the wrath of God. You and I don't want to escape the wrath of God on our own. This is the problem. This is a big problem. Men don't naturally want to escape the wrath of God. Why? Look at verse 18b. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The first thing we see in our passage for today is that the unrighteous people of the world suppress the truth. Men go on in their unrighteousness even though the wrath of God is being revealed to them. The core of this unrighteousness is the act of burying the truth. Burying it. Covering the truth over with false beliefs so that they do not have to contemplate or come to grips with the true nature of God. In other words, it's ignorance, but it's worse than that. It's malevolence. Ignorance. What do I mean by that? They don't fully grasp and comprehend the full wrath of God, though it's being revealed. They are ignorant of it. And yet, the Bible says they're not only ignorant and dumb to the fact that God is going to judge them in their sin, if they stay in their sin, but they go on further and they become malevolent in their motives and they not only deny God, but they cover over the knowledge of God. This is an active process, not a passive process that we are a part of before we come to Christ, of denying God. I know, again, you want to put yourself in this semi-safe condition where you can sit outside of Christ but not against God, and the Bible doesn't allow it. You, in your sin, suppress the truth. The core of this unrighteousness is this act. There are so many ways that we seek to suppress the truth. We, we, truth. we often try to replace the truth of God with a perceived truth. In other words, it seems that the earth is very old, and it seems that the Bible is saying that the earth is very young. So because of the scientific facts that I see in front of me, God's word must not be true. So I will follow the scientist. And as we follow the scientist on the science trail... Where they end, because many of them are lost, unfortunately, and not submitted to Christ, they end in humanism. Humanism is the exaltation of man into God's place. And they say all of this came from randomness. It just all came from randomness, therefore it has no purpose. And if it has no purpose, then I have no accountability. I'm free. We suppress the truth. You see what I'm saying? With perceived truths. See, I say perceived because... I don't think you have to deny what the world looks like and believe the Bible. But you may perceive it that way. And we also deny and cover over the truth and suppress the truth because we ignore the truth by filling our lives to the brim with earthly pursuit. So you're sitting here outside of Christ and you know there's wrath and you know that God has created this universe and you know that he has revealed himself through his general revelation. But instead of submitting to him and worshiping him, you've said, I don't know about all that, but let me get myself entertained. And that entertainment comes in all kinds of things. Like, you know, work, family, 
vacations, traveling the world, great causes, political activism. It gets caught up in all kinds of things so that your whole day is filled. The screw tape letters talk about this kind of suppression of the truth when it says that the, the older demon tells the younger demon, well, your client, that he's, he's professing truth to believe in the true God, but look, you can distract him still. You can distract him. Just keep him busy all the time. When he tries to go out and sit in God's creation under the general revelation of God and eat, send someone by to talk to him. Make sure he gets a paper. Do something to distract him. Why? So he might suppress the truth. We numb ourselves to the truth by staying busy, busy, busy as beavers. Because we don't want to deal with and come to grips with the fact that God is real. And that because he's real, we owe him. And because we owe him and have failed, he will judge us. These aren't innocent things we do. These are malevolent, sinful things. We entertain and seek pleasure so that we can numb the reality of the truth. These are, and many other things, are attempts to suppress and hold down the truth. But Paul says that it is actually impossible to fully suppress and separate oneself from the basic reality of God's existence. Verse 18b says, They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, which we've just described. And let, let, let me pause and say that this is not a claim that all men have the ultimate truth of the gospel revealed to them. That's not what Paul's saying. That is the ultimate truth that the apostle is commanded in the, committed to in the letter to the Roman church, but that's not the truth he's talking about here. He's not talking about the gospel truth. What truth is then being suppressed, we might ask, in unrighteousness? We'll look at verse 19. For what, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The second thing we need to see in this passage is that Paul makes in this passage, the second point Paul makes in this passage is that the reality of the Creator God is plain to all men because God shows it to them. You see what I'm saying in verse 19? It's plain to them because God made it plain to them. God revealed it to them. So the truth that they are suppressing in their sin is what can plainly be known about God. Sinners hate God so much that they want to suppress the truth as it exists. Think about how bad it hurts when someone who you love or who you have relationship with, you go into an event, you walk into a room. And when you get there, You say to that person, hey, how are you? Revealing yourself. And they do this. And they start going another direction, talking to someone else. How do you feel in that moment? You feel rejected. You feel embarrassed. You feel disjointed. What's going wrong? What have I done? You feel all those things. That's normal. Right? We have walked into the room of God's creation and he has said, here I am. And we have covered our eyes and said, I don't know God. How do you think it makes God feel? Yeah, he feels. He doesn't feel disjointed 
and he doesn't feel he's done anything wrong. He feels wrathful. Angry, holy anger is what he feels. It is plain to us. Imagine being that person, but then imagine that person being God. You've been ignored. You've been totally turned your back on. It's plain because God has not played hide and seek with us. God has not played hide and seek with us or the people of this world. Instead, God has placed himself on the stage so that everyone can see him. And the stage is the created world which he has made, the whole of the universe. David writes in Psalm 19, 1 through 6, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It is expansive. David says, and it is always pouring forth day and night, day and night, season upon season. The world is shouting at the humans, God exists. It's loud. The voice has gone to the ends of the earth. You think Ryan screams. You think I scream. The creation screams. Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the rocks will praise me. That's the God we serve. The created world was made as a stage for God's glory that all of us might see it. Isaiah 40, 25-28 says, To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings on their host by number, calling them all by name. Talking about the stars. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Jeremiah 32, 17 say, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. These are just some of the verses that teach that the Lord is revealed in his work of creation. And we must come to understand that God is the one. God is the one who is telling us about himself. Every revelation of God is initiated by him. And man has never seen the Lord in general creation except that God has revealed himself through the general creation. This is key because it is not man discovering or creating knowledge about God. It is God revealing himself. God is the initiator. God is the one speaking. The creation speaks because God hasn't ceased to speak in and through creation. If God did not want us to know Him, church, 
then he certainly could have stayed silent and unknown. But to the glory of God, he wants all men to know him and know that he is the Almighty above heaven and earth. This revelation being described in verse 19 is what we refer to as general revelation of God. This revelation is general in at least these three ways. It is universal, it is limited, it is condemning. Here's what I mean. Universal. I just read verses about it. It's everywhere. There's nowhere in the world, the depths of the ocean, the very outer limits of the space travel, you cannot escape God's existence. The the whole world and the whole universe is screaming it at us. It is limited. You can't know everything there is to know about God from the creation. This is true, but what you can know is knowable. What you can know is real, and what you can know, you must know, because if you don't, that knowledge condemns you. People go to hell because they reject God. Understand this. This is a fine nuance, but it's important. People don't only go to hell because they don't believe the gospel. People go to hell because they reject and do not believe in God. Rejecting the gospel is part of the rejection of God. But it is not necessary that God preach the gospel to everyone on the planet. God has revealed himself through the creation, and you said, no, I don't want to know you. He has no obligation to you or any man, because what he gave you, you rejected. That's what Paul says. It's universal, it's limited, and it condemns. General revelation is designed to give a powerful and unceasing witness to the greatness of God. God deserves to be worshipped and extolled without interruption, and that's exactly what he gets from his universe. Uninterrupted worship from the beginning of, thus says the Lord, let there be. And there was. At that moment, worship began. And it has not stopped, and it will not stop, not then, not now, or not forever. He will be worshipped. Two more things I want you to know about this revelation is that it is external and it's internal. It's external. I've been talking about that, but it is internal. Every fiber of your being screams there is a God. Now, we got medical people in here, so I'm not going to try to get medical. I'll embarrass myself really quickly because all I've ever done is read a little bit, right? But we've got nurses, doctors, and you go sit with any of them, have a cup of coffee, and let them explain, explain to you the magnificence of the human body. It's not amazing or surprising that people are born with infirmities. What's amazing is anybody's ever born alive because of the intricacy it takes for a human to live. Go sit and have coffee sometime, or better yet, make an appointment and see Dr. Downey and get your eyes checked and let him tell you about the glory of God from the human eye, which should not do what it does based on evolutionary theory. But it does it. Why? Because God did it. Your body screams forth. Your DNA screams forth. Your very center of who you are screams forth. There is a God. And what are you doing to that? Suppressing it. Listening to podcasts by a bunch of fools telling you he doesn't exist. You can join them on their merry way, but that way leads right to the gate of hell. Verse 20 tells us that this creator God has revealed about himself Something amazing. Paul says he's revealed his power. His eternal power. 
He reveals his power through the vastness of creation and other things. But listen to this just quickly. On December 18, 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope pointed at a tiny dark spot in the sky. Over the course of 10 consecutive days, the most powerful telescope in the world gathered light from one region so small that it is the equivalent of this. Hold a sewing needle out at arm's length. The part of the sky the Hubble was looking at is the size of what you can see in that needle eye. It drew light from this one section of outer space for 10 straight days. And what it returned to us in picture form was what we call the Hubble Deep Field. The greatest picture, according to scientists, ever taken. A second image is gathered much like this one in 2003. And with improved technology and imaging technique, this picture became the deepest image of the universe ever taken. And this is what they saw. In the image, you can see, and you can go online and see this image, you can see a few stars from our own galaxy. These stars are just like seeing bugs smashed on a windshield as we look out in the expanse of space. Every other spot and speck of light is itself a galaxy. So we see a few little stars in our galaxy, and then it goes beyond that, and what we see are all these specks, which when we zoomed in on them, they're all galaxies. The Milky Way galaxy, in other words, doesn't reach the limits of what God created. He created 10,000 galaxies in that small area of space. How awesome is this God? You and I can't make anything from nothing. And He made all of it with one simple word. Let there be and there was. Each galaxy contains millions and millions of stars, and our Bible tells us he knows every one of them by name. All this was found in a dark spot in the sky behind the eye of a needle. It's equal to roughly one thirteen millionth of the total area of the sky. Ten thousand galaxies in that small space. How many galaxies are there? Like the sands of the seashore, so are the stars in the heavens. And if you can number them, God can number his people. You can number God's people. Can you see why this has been called the most important image ever taken? Because what it shows to us is the power of God. And yet the scientists who looked at it deny, many of them, the existence of that very God. He reveals himself in power through the power that's trapped in the matter of this universe. Now, I just described all this matter, and all of that matter comes down to E equals MC squared when we're talking about power, which basically means all of the power, again, we got engineers in the room. I'm not going to try to get into all this, but basically what that means is this, simply as Aaron Akras told us many times in elders' meetings, if you took your uh, solid mass, the size of your fingernail, and you converted it to pure energy, you would flatten the space bigger than Aniston. Bigger than the space of Alabama. A fingernail's worth. I just said there's 10,000 galaxies in the space of an eye of a needle. That's one thirteen millionth of the universe. 
There's millions of stars in each one of those galaxies. And each one of those stars is made of a mass. Each one of the planets is made of a mass. Everything has mass. If you converted it all, what power does it take to make that? Because whatever power created it and put it in it, it still exists. He has revealed His power. He has revealed His power through the awesome nature of things like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and earthquakes. Even to this day, we can't predict them and we can't control them. And they destroy everything in their path. He reveals the unlimited power he holds in the vastness of an ocean. That is the magnitude of the mountains, the rhythms of creation which stack on top of one another. One after another calling out, God exists. He also reveals to us his divine nature. Now this was, that was a specific thing that Paul said, now a general thing. And that general thing is this. That he tells us there is a God. Dr. Tom Schreiner says this. And this is one of the rarest terms in the New Testament. It's only found one other place in Jude 6. The word we translated divine nature. It's meant to focus on the fact that God is God. And it is another way to speak of his revelation of himself as existent. Every human who has ever lived knows the universe exists. And every human that has ever existed knows that universe is not God. And so therefore, every single human being that's ever walked the earth knows something created this. Because nothing can't come out of nothing. It had to come from someone. Why did it have to come from someone? Because as Billy Graham told us years ago, and many ancient philosophers even said, if you were walking in the woods one day and found a perfectly built watch, gold-plated crystal arms ticking in time, everything working inside of it, you would not look at that one watch and say, must have just showed up here one day. And that's one watch. I just described to you in brief form this universe, and you want to tell me, yeah, it's all just chance. Some chemicals got together. He reveals his divine nature in these ways. What is invisible is seen in the creation. Third, in this passage, we see that all humanity is left without excuse before God. We don't have to dwell here. I've already been speaking about it. You already feel it. The universal knowledge of God through the, new, the natural creation leaves man without excuse before the righteous judgment of God. People are condemned by God because even though the knowledge of Him is clearly perceived, that's what the text says, by each person since the beginning of creation, each person based on this revealed knowledge of God has rejected, suppressed, and held down the truth. There is no excuse. Fourth, we see that because man has denied, suppressed the truth of God, each person has failed to honor God as God or give proper Thanks to him. That's what the next thing in the text says. Worship of God should be the natural inclination of the human heart because we were born to worship. We were created to worship. But what we're born in is sin because what, what happens is when we're born, we refuse to worship God from the beginning of our lives. Humans are most doxological creatures ever created. Doxological is just a big word to say that humans were designed to glory in the Creator God, to glorify Him. But when Adam sinned, the natural worship of God was perverted and turned away from God to another God, a little g God. We'll get there in a minute. Honor and gratitude are the basic response of the unbroken man 
the unbroken, unsinful man, because he obviously, plainly sees God is the ultimate behind all temporal creation. The suppression of truth in verse 18b has led to the refusal to properly honor and give thanks to God in verse 21. When we live thankless lives due to pride and sin, our lives get small and petty. Because that's not how we were designed to live. The reason some of you are fighting with the people in your house right now is because you're petty. I said it. I get petty too. You know why I get petty? Because my world's small. It revolves around me. You know why it revolves around me? Because when I act that way, I'm denying the existence of God. You want to get rid of your pettiness and your smallness? Get your eyes on God. See Him. One of the greatest solutions and tools that God ever gave us to see Him. One of them. There's another one. We're not going to talk about it today. Well, at the end we are. <laughs> it's not in this passage. But the general revelation, listen, was designed by God. When you start feeling really small and petty, I want to challenge you. Get out in nature and walk around. Find in it the power of God and the existence of God, and the beauty of God. And your soul will be enlarged, and your pettiness will go away. Fifth, in our passage, Paul says, the result of suppressing the truth about God, living lives of not giving honor and thanks to God, leads to man being dull and dark. That's why our text says, dull and dark. Look what he says right there. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, dull in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 21b and 22 are important for us to accept because they lead us from our head to our heart. If you're not living by faith in Christ then you will deny the true God exists, live a proud life, become consumed with selfishness due to the lack of gratitude present in your life. And in the end, even though you believe you are the smartest person in the world, because in your small world, you're the only one that matters, the Word of God says you are a fool. Corey said something yesterday that helps us understand our text. When we live in sin, which is ultimately what Paul's describing in this passage, is living in sin, when we do that, we are erasing the image of God that is in us. Another way he said it is this way. He said it's like we take the shovel of the spiritual life and we dig out what makes us know there is a God inside of us. We just dig it out or we hollow ourselves out with our sin. You're becoming a shadow of yourself when you sin. A shadow of what you were created to be in the image of God. Sin doesn't set you free, it enslaves you and it smothers the inner voice that says there is a God. And when that happens, your world gets small and all you think about is all the ways that you can entertain yourself while you're on the happy road to hell. This text is telling us that if we, if we start to deny God and suppress the truth, then we don't live in honor of Him and we don't have gratitude. Church, we need to thank God that He has delivered us from this darkness which puts us under His wrath.
We need to thank him. The treason of our soul deserves the misery in this life, death, and at the end of life, the, it turns into hell for all of eternity. When we deny God's power and divine nature that have been clearly revealed in the creation because God has made it known, our inner man is darkened. You see, you need to be afraid of the dark. Children are naturally afraid of the dark. Some of y'all are still afraid of the dark. I'm not going to call you out. Some of you sleep with the lights on. Because you're afraid of the dark. But that's instinctive in us. We're scared of the dark. The problem with sin is it makes us feel good in the dark. And in that darkness, there is no light. And without light, there's no way home. And without a way home, there's hell. When we deny God's power and divine nature that has been clearly revealed in the creation because God has made it known, our inner man becomes dark. This darkness is not merely the absence of light, but it is an active evil that is seeking to separate you and me from the fellowship we have possible with God and with one another. Both things are true. The goal of this darkness is to send you to the eternal torment of hell under the wrath of God for age without end. That's the goal of the darkness. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Our minds become dull. But there is one final thing Paul says to us in this passage. And it's the most fearful part of the passage to me. In verse 23, 22 and 23, he tells us that we are by nature guilty of idolatry. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Pastor Carl, listen, I'm not an idol worshiper. That's what those ancient and primitive people did with statues of stone and wood. And they bowed down to them. That's crazy. I don't do that. But Paul agrees that that is exactly what every culture has done, and that's what every culture is doing right now. Look what it says in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they become fools because they're claiming to be wise in their darkened state and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and snakes, creeping things. Who's Paul talking about? The text indicates that he's talking about the same people who suppress the truth in righteousness. In unrighteousness, I'm sorry. It's not some new group of people that Paul's talking about. You see what I'm saying? This is all connected. 18b, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, the end of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness is idolatry. And it's everyone, not a small group of people. Everyone in the natural state is an idolater. The truth is that the result of suppressing and covering over and rejecting and lying about the truth of God as creator over all things leads all men to be idolaters. There are no people who exist outside the realm of worship and religion. Everyone is under worship and religion. Everyone. The question is... Are you in Christ, therefore worshiping the true God? Or have you created some small God that looks like you? Everyone's worshiping. John Calvin said it this way, Therefore it is utterly vain for some men to say that religion was invented by the subtlety and craft of a few to hold the simple folk enthralled by this device. And that those very persons who originated the worship of God for others did not in the least believe that any God existed. I confess, indeed, that in order to hold men's minds in greater subjection, clever men have devised very many things in religion by which to inspire the common folk with reverence and to strike them with terror. 
but they would never have achieved this if men's minds had not already been imbued or given with a firm conviction about God, from which the inclination toward religion springs as from a seed. And indeed, it is not credible that those who craftily imposed upon the ruder folk under pretense of religion were entirely devoid of the knowledge of God. If indeed there were some in the past and today, not a few people, a few who appear who deny that God exists, yet willy-nilly they from time to time feel an inkling of what they desire not to believe. Indeed, they seek out every subterfuge to hide themselves from the Lord's presence and to affect it again from their minds, efface it again from their minds. But in spite of themselves, they are always entrapped. Although it may sometimes seem to vanish away for a moment, it returns at once and rushes in with new force. If for these there is any respite from anxiety of conscience, it is not much different from the sleep of a drunken and frenzied person who do not rest peacefully even while sleeping because they are continually troubled with dire and dreadful dreams. The impious themselves therefore exemplify the fact that some conception of God is ever alive in all men's minds. Stephen Hawking denied God, but he couldn't escape God. And every beat of his heart said to him, God exists. Men cannot escape the fact of God. Men cannot escape the fact of God. And one day, they will be unable to escape the face of God. Because men were designed by God to worship him from the beginning, when Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into idolatry and self-worship. Let me define idolatry quickly. Idolatry is the denial of the one true God who should be rightly worshipped and glorified. It's the denial of the one true God who should be rightly worshipped and glorified and it is the enthronement of self and selfish desires in the place of worship. Idolatry is trying to or working hard to exchange Exchange. Take what's real and put in its place what is not real. What's real is God. What's not real is that you are God, that I am God. But that's what we worship outside of Christ is ourself. Again, it's helpful to hear the fact that our nature and our heart in every man is a perpetual idol factory. That's what Calvin said. They've denied God, suppressed the truth, grown increasingly dark and dim, witted, which leads them to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of corruptible man, birds, beasts, snakes. You don't need to miss that, right? Look at that language. Where does that sound back to? It sounds back to Psalm 105. Where does Psalm 105 sound from? Well, it sounds back to Genesis chapter 1. Man was created in the image of God. And in that image, without sin... He was to populate the earth with the glory of God so that the whole world was covered with the glory of God. But when Adam sinned, he plunged us into this diabolical plan to take that glory which belongs only to God and give it to self. Give it to self. Your selfishness is not a sign 
that you deserve more than you have. It's a sign that you deserve the punishment and the wrath of God. You cannot miss the clear picture that Paul is painting here. From the high of verse 16 and 17 where he says, I'm proud of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith, to faith, as it's written, those who are righteous by faith shall live. That's the height to the low of verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God with images in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. This is a deep descent into utter darkness. That's what this text has done. Corruption is the condition caused by sin, which means that everything is decaying, dying, and especially moral corruption leads to hopelessness and ultimately to the destruction of ourself in hell. Man, Paul says, has refused to worship the Creator God. Instead, he's exchanged, he's traded in the worship of the incorruptible for the worship of the corruptible. Man is now worshiping the mere image of God, not the fullness of God. Man is pitifully seeking to fill himself with himself, and he comes up empty and dark every time. We are hollow because of this. We cannot do what needs to be done. We cannot worship God rightly. We are perverted in all of our thinking and in our desires. And this leads us to perverted worship, which brings down the wrath of a holy God on us. That's what he says. Let me describe a couple of these idolatries in our society. Our idols are not wood and hay and stubble and stone and put in a temple neatly. No, we worship ideologies, philosophies, and physical prowess. That's what the United States mind and heart worships. What do I mean by ideologies? Well, exactly that. Beliefs of this world, systems of this world which have, are calling on you to be faithful to them. One such place would be in politics. Ideologies from the right and the left seek to grab your heart and your mind and plunge it into the darkness that if everyone would just be like you, they'd be okay. And the truth is, if everyone is like you, we're all in trouble. There's no hope in that. Ideologies, the belief, the ideological belief that education fixes everything let me just tell you something really quickly. Though he brings up being dim-witted or being uh, foolish, he's not talking about an education problem. We can't educate our way out of the sin of our life because education and lack of knowledge is not the problem. God has revealed himself. The problem is us. You can do what you want in education. I'm glad that more people can read today than ever have. I don't know how well they read, but they can read. I'm talking about all over the world. More people read today than ever. But all that reading is doing is educating a foolish mind and a darkened heart that still sits under the wrath of God. Education cannot solve the problem. you got to believe that. you got to stop idolizing that. you got to let it go. Listen, it's not just that. 
It's in the health industry, in the body image industry. Oh, you don't know what I'm talking about? Well, you got Instagram, a lot of you do. Go turn it on or whatever you do. Open it up, click on it. I don't have it. <laughs> I guess it's turned on. Just click on it. It'll pop up there on your screen. And I don't have it. This is the truth. I don't want it. I don't need to be hipped. But what I hear people talking about from that place of social media is the lie that by looking better and feeling better and eating better and working out better, we're all going to save ourselves. And that's a lie. It's an idolatry. And you want to know if you're serving that idol at all, even a little bit? The next time that beautiful person pops up on your screen, what do you think? I'm not good enough, so i got to try harder to be them. That's idolatry. That's worship in human form. Or you look at them and say, look at that imperfection. I don't have that imperfection. Look at that person's nose. Let me just tell you something. Nobody has a pretty nose. We live in a fallen world. All noses are messed up. Look at that color of those eyes. My eyes look better. That guy can only lift 300 pounds. I can lift 315. Foolish. That's the cry of a desire from the inner heart and the inner man that has to worship something and you've turned your worship to the smallness of body image and working out and health food. Wealth. Do I need to go on? One more. Sports culture. I've I've particularly chosen things that are good, which we have perverted into idols, because that's what idol factories do. They pervert good things, make them evil. Listen to me. Our world has believed the lie, and some of us are believing, that our children's future rests in their ability to chase a ball, hit a ball, shoot a ball. It's foolish. There's a whole lot of people that their kid's going to get that scholarship they chased after. And that kid's going to have a new God. And they'll spend the rest of their days trying to get rid of it. And you as the parent or grandparent will say, you know, you got to get your kids in church. you got to get your kid in church. That's my grandkid. I took you when you were a kid. And you know what they're going to say? Really? What you like? Once a month? When there wasn't something else to do? When there wasn't another ball to chase? When there wasn't another trophy to win? That's when I went? Yeah, I, it didn't seem that important to you, to be honest with you. And if they don't say it when they look at you, you're going to feel it. Don't fool yourself, church, in thinking you're not a part of these idolatries. Get real with yourself in the mirror this afternoon. Can your kid play sports? I, absolutely, I played them. I hope you play them. But when it becomes your God, it'll break you. You'll never achieve what you want there. 
not in education, not in ideology, not in philosophy, not in sports, not in politics, not in wealth. Those are pitiful gods. Our problem is not out there in the world. Our problem is deep and in our dark hearts because of our sin. We have become completely incapable of worship of the one true God. We are broken. We're breaking ourselves every moment of every day. We're desperately in need of someone who can rightly worship in our place, church. We need someone that can do this. And then bring us to worship rightly. And the truth is, we have that someone, and his name is Jesus. He is the true worshiper of God that we need because he is God in the flesh. Listen to what the Bible says about him in John. I'm just going to run through these. Listen to these beautiful words and listen to them in light of what we've said today. In John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And later in that passage it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we, listen, we have seen His glory. He didn't exchange glory. He took on glory and displayed it to us. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Don't you want to see God? No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You want to see God? See Jesus. John 3 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because they have suppressed the truth of God. Because they have not believed in the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work is exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 5 says, Jesus said, I came not on my own authority, but the authority of the one who sent me. I've come to do the mission of the one who sent me. John 10, 7 through 10. Excuse me, John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world, Jesus speaking. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have light, the light of life. You want to get out of the darkness of your soul, walk with Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the light that sheds into the darkness and cannot be overcome. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me were thieves, robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy but I have come that they may have life and that life more abundantly. You want something to worship, worship Jesus. Why? Because in Him you get God and in God you get all the satisfaction your soul could ever have. John 17, 1-5, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all 
who you gave to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And now, Father, glorify me. You see the focus of glory. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The reality is that we need Christ to save us from our idolatry, in which we exchange what we have just heard all of those passages for self-exaltation and self-gratification. We need the one who lived the perfect life of worship to transform us so that we can, through him, worship God rightly. And that's the call of this message at the end here, is for you to come to Christ. It's not enough to tell you your condition. I'm telling you the solution to your condition. I'm telling you the fix to your need. I'm telling you the only hope the world has ever known in his name is Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, the Word before all time, made flesh in the moment of, of appearing. Glory of God on display, obeying and worshiping God with every breath of his being until he took the cross for you. And in that death, he died your death. And in his life, you live a life of worship. That's the only way we can worship, church. That's the only way we can worship. We need Jesus. Amen? We need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we have so many things in our heart at this moment. So many things. So many hard things. The truth is, some of us have been chasing idols lately. Even though we are in you, we're chasing them. We've turned our feet back towards the way of sin and destruction. And we're dying, literally, on the vine. Help us now, Jesus. Help the church. Help your church at Grace Fellowship. And not only that, Lord, but there are those here that are lost. They think they're okay. You don't see them, but you see them. The general revelation has made you known to them, and they have denied you, and they need you. Now, would you send your spirit to awaken their dead souls to come to you and worship you in spirit and truth, in faith, for faith, to faith. They gain their righteousness only by your, your work. Faith in your work saves them. So help them now. Bring them to yourself. It's in your name we pray. Amen.